I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to On the Continent, your definitive guide to the week in European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Annie Brassel. I'm Nikki Bandini. On this edition, it was ciao and arrivederci to Italy at Wembley. Will the champions qualify to defend their title? If so, how? Well, Nikki's here to give us the full Cosi Fantute on that. Also, after an impressive campaign so far, are Portugal serious contenders for the Euros? And what will Cristiano Ronaldo have to do with it? And although Sergio Ramos is proving to be a hard nut to crack, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, at Sevilla, but... Are Real Madrid back to haunt him this weekend? Well, 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 Nicky. What a week it's been for Italy. And not just Italy, by the way. Uh, Scamacca, who scored his first goal for the Azuris at Wembley. But what good did it do them? What good did it do them? Um, well, it didn't win them a game of football. That's certainly true. Um, I don't know if you could still say it did them no good at all. Obviously, the, the hunt for a number nine is ongoing in Italy. Uh, they've had Ciro Immobile failing to to deliver at international level as he does at club level for a very long time. Um, there hasn't really been a standout, clear first choice at number nine in, gosh, more than a decade. I mean, you think about it to... Antonio Conte taking Graziano Pelle to uh, Euros and actually making that look like a serviceable option. It's been a long-standing problem for Italy. Oh, yeah. Filling that situation up front. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not recent. Um, and so the fact that Scamacca scored a goal is, is encouraging. I, I thought actually, from the Italian point of view, there was a reasonable amount of encouraging football played in this in this match. It's a great goal. Um was lovely build up to the goal. I was saying just before he came in, I'm not I'm not totally sure that Skamaka hits that as cleanly <laughs> as he thinks he wants to, because I think his reaction looked a bit had a bit of that sort of air of relief of a man who thought his shot was going over for a second and then thought, okay, it's it's gone in. I've been out for a month, give me a break. Yeah. Kind of it's yeah. my first goal. And if I'd missed it, you know, there is a sense of relief, isn't there? Definitely. Um but I, I think you saw some some early signs of, of what Spalletti wants the team to look like. I think you saw some some growing pains in that. And I think the thing that I've, I've been saying in the last couple of days, and which I still sort of believe to, to be true, is this game wasn't strangely that essential for Italy. Because if Italy had won this game 
and even then go on and win their next game against North Macedonia, they still go into the final game in the group against Ukraine, knowing that a loss can knock them out. Mm. Whereas now, if they beat North Macedonia at home in the next game, which we can't take for granted, North Macedonia have thrown several spanners in their spokes in the last uh, couple of years. But if they do, they actually still go to that last game against Ukraine in exactly the same position. Don't lose and they'll go through. So weirdly, it was a game that didn't impact them that much um, in, in the group, or at least didn't necessarily impact them that much. So it, it was about what you learn about the team. And I think Spalletti wasn't bluffing when he said afterwards, you know, there was there was good things to take from this. Um, and if you want to play, as he was descri- describing it, this modern European style of football, then yes, you're going to take some chances. You're going to take some risks. And sometimes a, a great player like Jude Bellingham is going to expose those. Did, did they, for you, Andy, look like the Euro champions defending their title? No, no, they, they, they don't. And I, I don't think they're that team anymore. Mm. And I, I think the interesting thing about that team, as Nicky was pointing out, they were never the finished article when they, they won it. That they were, they were excellent under Mancini and I think they deserve to win Euro 2020. They played the boldest football, which I think was a massively positive departure for international football in, in general. But that gap at centre forward, that's not something that's happened overnight. That's That's been a, a problem for a while. And I think the fact that Skamaka gets rushed back for this, um, of course, he played a bit in the Malta game and, you know, had a, a few minutes for um, Atalanta before, beforehand. But he's not, he's not ready, ready at the moment. Now, I think you look at Skamaka and you think because of the type of player he is, he would actually be the ideal centre forward for Italy going forward because he can be the target man as as, as well because he can hold the ball up as, as as well. I know about you, Nicky. If I was Andrea Bellotti, I would be having a look at this thinking this season is an opportunity for me because he's come back in after a really bad season last season for, for one reason and another. I think not having a proper pre-season with a club was a huge part of that and we've seen how that's affected other players, even including Kylian Mbappe this season, who's not not been quite at his best. But the the late nature of his signing really affected him. Now, you look at him this season, he looks a completely different player. And I, I think especially with the situation that Roma are in, especially with the fitness of Paolo Dybala, I think if you're Belotti, you're, you're sitting there thinking, I want to get my games here. And not just in the Europa League. If I can show that I was the player that I was for most of the time I was at Torino. I've got a great chance of getting in that squad and maybe even getting in the lineup. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a, a, a good shout about Bellotti. And I think it's really going to be fascinating in the next few weeks with Dybala injured again to see how Mourinho uses Bellotti at Roma because, of course, Lukaku was signed. So Bellotti started the season, scores a goal, and you think, OK, is this a monkey off his back and, and things can look up? But because Tammy Abraham has been injured as well, they were still looking for a striker. They do finally get Lukaku in. And Lukaku's been brilliant for them. He's yeah. scoring a goal a game. So immediately that spot that might have opened up for Bellotti at Roma was taken away. Now Dybala's out. And that's the question being asked. Can you play Bellotti and Lukaku together? Because they are much more similar in play style than Dybala and Lukaku are. They look, they look good together at Cagliari, I thought, in that, in that little sample size. I guess the other thing that works in his favour in the immediate term, as is, is, is you talked about, what I meant about seizing an opportunity, mm-hmm. is the fact that Lorenzo Pellegrini is injured. I mean, you can imagine that Mourinho sets that team up with just Lukaku up top and maybe pushes Pellegrini into an advanced role. He can't do that because Pellegrini's out for a month. Yeah. So 
And if you look at the injury record in general of a lot of Roma's top players, if you're Bellotti, just stay fit, just stay fit. And, and you'll get your game. That, well, I mean, to be fair, that could also extend to Italy at the moment. And just to, to come back to what, what, what Dottam was saying about do they look like the, the winners of the Euros? Of course not. I mean, there's three, I think, of the starting 11 from the Euro 2020 final started this game at, at, at Wembley which would be Donnarumma, Barella and um, the right-back Di Lorenzo. So it's a completely different team. You've said goodbye to Piccolini and Bonucci forever. So that core, that defensive sort of platform is, is changed. It's, it's gone. It's not coming back. Um, Federico Chiesa, who was the breakout talent of that Euros, actually this season has started to look like that Federico Chiesa again, almost for the first time since with the injuries he's had. But he wasn't available for this game, so we didn't see him in this game. I do think he's clearly a fundamental part of the attack going forward. And what's interesting and will be interesting is actually where does he end up in Spalletti's team? Because at Juventus this season, he's even played through the middle sometimes. And that's a, a an open question. Um, at the moment, Spalletti is playing very much in a 4-3-3, which is what he used at Napoli. And if he sticks to that, I would expect still that Chiesa ends up out wide on the left. But well, you're my Kvarat Skelia, pretty yeah, much. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but, there is there's there's opportunities to do different things there, and I think that's sort of really the the the, the core point to hold on to with this Italy team is they already weren't the team from the Euros because they'd failed to qualify for a World Cup in the meantime. Mm. Players had left or retired. Players had got too old. Things had changed. But Roberto Mancini leaving in the middle of this qualifying campaign makes it even more true. You have a manager who's come in, who is a manager who has a very firm sense of his own tactical ideas and what he wants. And he's had three weeks before his first two qualifiers that he played. And then he's had one more get together with his squad and then these two qualifiers. So it is all a work in progress. I guess that's the question, really. Uh, we're talking about Spalletti's football and how that might turn out. Mm. For the next couple of games, that doesn't matter. And yes. since since he's taken charge, it doesn't really matter. Because immediately, Don, they're playing that game against Ukraine in Milan, which they probably should have won 2 or 3-0. But once they concede the goal, they start to get a little bit frightened mm. and sort of retreat into themselves a little bit. And that's what they're going to have to fight, isn't it? Because, as you say, they've had these difficulties against North Macedonia, both in this qualifying campaign and, of course, in the going back to the World Cup playoff, where, where, where they suffered a really big shock. And then that game against Ukraine in Leverkusen. In neither of those games is it really going to be about the football they play, is it? No, it's not. It's 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 purely about results now. Um, but I think that what you saw from these two games more than the first two is they're going to try and get those results playing a Spalletti way. And mm. I think that the way the football they played against Malta, it's Malta. You're going to beat Malta. But there were still signs of that fluidity, signs of that... Um, quite familiar style of football that you saw in the game you saw at Napoli where they are trying to play as a possession team they're trying to um, keep a very tight front to back in their formation so they are pressing higher and you saw some high pressing against England but I saw some quite interesting numbers on that that actually in terms of pure numbers the number of, of instances of pressing they did it more under Mancini against England than they did under Spalletti. The difference is how they're doing it and how the team stays together. It's, it's a much shorter team from front to back than it was. And um, and I, I think all of that is signs of what he's trying to do. And they are going to try and win that way. It does lead to lots of questions about, for instance, I think even in this game, 
look at one of the areas which Italy, I think, is undoubtedly talented, which is left back, because Destiny Adogi has had a really nice start to the season at, at, yeah. at Tottenham. But I think Federico Di Marco is really playing at a, a world-class level right now for Inter, and he's playing at left wing back. But because you've got this 4-3-3, there isn't really a way of sticking them both in unless you do what I suggested yesterday maybe they could do, which is if you haven't got Chiesa, why not try Di Marco on the wing? Why not? He he's mm-hmm. plays high enough up. He can cross the ball. If you want to press high, you've got someone who can do it. There are lots of questions like that that are still to be answered. And I just said there was eight different players in this starting eleven than there were in the Euro 2020 final. There were eight different players between the Malta game and this one. So there is a lot of feeling things out. But how is it being looked at in Italy? Uh, This was a 3-1 defeat at the scene of their victory against England, against the same team just a few years ago. I know, as we've said, a lot has happened since then. Mm -hmm. But I can imagine if it was the other way around, there would be questions being asked in the English press. How the Italian press and indeed fans, spectators, supporters dealt with this? The the reaction really hasn't been too dramatic to it because I think there's there's been a long building since. I mean, we're talking about years. I would say initially that the coverage of English football has had a certain tone of well, they've got all the money, they've got all the stuff, they should win. And so, frankly, it's more tends to come from the other side of it. So when Italy win Euro twenty twenty, it's look at this, we went there and they still can't beat us. We are the underdogs, exactly. Um, So there isn't that feeling of of expectation, even though. Um, obviously European champions going there. Uh, there's a building sense of anxiety because, of course, you failed to qualify for two World Cups. Yes, you won the Euros in between, but that's still two of the last three major tournaments you've missed. And now there's a realistic prospect that Italy don't finish in the top two in this group. Of course, they have still got the fallback after that if they've guaranteed a playoff spot because of their performance in the Nations League. But they had but, fallback after fallback right. after fallback in the World Cup qualifying campaign and they messed all of exactly. them, didn't they? Exactly. So, so the idea of going to that playoff is, it, I think that if it ever got to that point, that would be extremely traumatic. But I think the expectations, the, the hope for this game, I think, for most people in Italy was that they were going to see signs of progress under Spalletti. And I think there was enough encouragement there to take away from it going, okay, it wasn't perfect, but we're not in panic mode yet. We think this team should go and beat North Macedonia and Ukraine. Whether or not that's how it will be, different question, and whether or not there will be building anxiety towards those two games. Of course, the build-up to those two games is going to be incredibly um, frayed nerves and and and, and stress about it. Um, and it will go how it goes. Okay, let's talk about the legal issues around this. So, mm-hmm. um, OTC judicial alert here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, will Spalletti get a pass for the fact that his team is unravelling without him, you know, out of his control because of the legal issues that Tonali and Zaniolo find themselves in? You might want to explain that for those who don't know as well. Yeah, it's 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 quite a sort of... Um, Long-winded story. Uh, So there's an ongoing investigation in Turin into illegal betting companies. um, And that's in Italy, there are licensed betting companies, but there are some companies that operate outside of the official licensing. And so there is a police investigation into these companies trying to unravel where they're being operated and deal with that as a criminal matter. And as part of that investigation, some footballers have been identified as having bet with these companies. Um, and the first one that we knew about was actually Nicolo Fagioli, who's a Juventus player. 
Um, he uh, was identified by Trim prosecutors a, a short while ago. We already knew before this last week that he was um, that he'd uh, come under scrutiny and that he was uh, not only being sort of tried in a sorry tried is the wrong word not only being investigated in a criminal sense but that whether or not he had bet on football matches being investigated because it is of course completely not allowed for footballers to bet on football matches uh, in Italy the sporting code specifies they cannot bet on matches that fall under the auspices of UEFA FIFA or the Italian Football Federation so we had that starting point we knew that was ongoing then last week on Thursday police show up at Italy's training base in Covercano this is before the game against Malta actually and they question Tonali and Sagnolo and a day later those two players get sent home from the training uh, base since then we know a lot more Fagioli has now had a plea bargain accepted with the Italian sporting prosecutor basically saying um, I'm a gambling addict I absolutely did bet on football matches Um, I want to come clean about everything and Here's everything, basically. He's turning state's evidence then, is he? It, effectively, yes. Yeah. And and what's happened is that he's been handed a seven-month ban with an additional five-month suspended ban, which essentially in the five months um, is... It's like community service, basically, exactly. isn't it? Community service is a good way of putting it. He's got to go and, and give talks to young people and young footballers and say, this is a dangerous thing. Here's why not to get into it. This will happen to me. But seven months, so almost his entire season, Fagioli, who, by the way, was Serie A's Young Player of the Year last year. So I know he's not as prominent a name as Tonali and Zaniola, but we're talking about a really promising young footballer who's clearly um, allowed something in his private life to, to become but, really disruptive. But, but you've just said he's a kid. I mean, and was it yes. Spalletti that made the point uh, just a few days ago? Um, if it wasn't Spalletti, it was somebody very high up in Italy saying, look, these are kids. Let's not lose sight of that, Yeah, essentially. Spalletti, I think his public comments have been quite good on this. You know, he's basically said, let's uh, not forget that, let's not abandon them, but also it's right that someone who does something wrong has to pay for it. And... It looks very much that Tonali is also going to fall into that camp. Um, so Tonali has uh, come clean that he was also betting on football and he has also sought a plea bargain with the um, Italian Sporting Justice. And uh, the reporting in Gazzetta dello Sport in the last two days, which is very confidently reported, is that he also bet on games involving his clubs, Milan and Brescia, which is obviously more serious. So, Though when he wasn't playing. Yes. Yeah. So in the Italian sporting code, uh, betting in general carries a, a potential ban of up to three years. So Fagioli's seven-month suspension, you can see, is a long way down from what it could have been. Um, but there is provision for it to be longer if you bet on your own clubs. So Tonali, we don't know where his ban will be yet, but he is going to be banned. And that ban will apply to the Premier League. That is going to be a, a ban across playing football in Europe and presumably in any FIFA competitions as well. And going off what Fagioli got, going off the fact that Tonali seems to be uh, uh, saying that he bet on games involving his own teams. To be absolutely clear, as Andy said, never betting against his teams. So not betting in a way that would be suggesting um, that he was fixing games, but betting on his teams. Seven months has to be the lowest possible bar. There's there's no way you could see it being less than Fagioli. Whether or not it could be more than Fagioli, that certainly seems very possible. Um, so again, a player who probably is not going to play club football again this season. Um, and probably not the Euros as, as, as well. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Obviously, Newcastle have invested a, a lot in him and then not going to see him probably for the, the, the rest of this season. I think for them, especially when it was, I guess for a lot of people, such a surprising transfer, 
and he's obviously had to adapt to life outside of Italy. They've got some work to do now. How they keep him involved, how they keep him feeling part of it. Now, Nicky, you were saying that Fagioli, unlike, say, Ivan Tony with Brentford, for example, certainly at the beginning, Fagioli is going to be allowed to continue to train with Juventus. Yes. So how this is dealt with and if Tonali is able to continue training with Newcastle, I think is absolutely key, isn't it? Yeah, and I think this fits into that same mindset espoused by Tonali, but also by representatives of the Italian Football Federation that we shouldn't abandon these kids. Like, you know, we should say, okay, you've done something And how old are these kids? So Fagioli is 22, uh, Tonali is 23, uh, Zaniolo is 24. And just to say on Zaniolo, because we didn't get to him yet, Zaniolo has, for now, appears to be a completely different situation where he has said, I never bet on football. I may have done some poker or blackjack on these illegal sites. Um, And if that is true, um, and it should be said that police did seize electronic devices of Tonali and Zaniolo at those raids. Um, if it's true, then Zaniolo will not be suspended from football. He might face a fine. In theory, there's a prison sentence you could face for that, but it would be very, very surprising. So um, so Zaniolo is, again, assuming honesty, then Zaniolo is, is not at risk of being suspended. But Tonali is, um, to bring it back to Spalletti in Italy, Tonali is almost certainly out of Italy's thinking until after the Euros now. Well, it does sound from what you say as if we're going to be revisiting this uh, scenario again. Yeah. And forgive me, just forgive me, but you're only supposed to blow the blooming doors off. My name is Michael Kane, and it seems that Turkey have got an Italian job on their hands. Yeah, they do. And you like uh, how I did it? <laughs> Very <laughs> much so. Always, just always. <laughs> just checking. But I, I think as as well. I'm I'm sure um, Vincenzo Montella is aware of that, having spent some time at uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Fulham. But uh, he's um, guided Turkey to Euro 2024, which is a pretty good effort, given that they were binning Stefan Kuntz going back a very short while now, who was, of course, linked with the, the Germany job, having done a good job with the under-21s b- before before Nagelsmann got the job. I, I think they've appointed well in appointing Montella. And I think the key part is he's been in it, uh, he's been in Turkey for a couple of years because he's been at Adana Demirspor, where he's... Um, had to deal with such larger-than-life characters as Mario Balotelli and Eunice Belanda Why over that little me? while. <laughs> Why always him? And I think that, that that is a huge part of it. I think one of the things that always struck me about Sven Juran Eriksson, as I was saying to Marcus on the, on the Ramble a little while ago, is that when he was England manager, for any complaints people might have had about him, he turned up to games all the time and knew all the players. And there's a feeling with previous Turkish coaches, particularly good hitting, and to a lesser extent, Michele Luchescu, they sort of did it by post. That They didn't really know the players. They didn't know the league well enough. That's something you could never level at, at Montella. He's really taken to Turkish football. And I think to have someone who really understands the players, understands the culture, knows the players is super important. Now, look, I know what you're thinking. I'm stopping short of predicting anything at the Euros themselves, but given the situation they're in and given that they're in a, a tricky enough group with with Croatia, to get out of it is 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 a fantastic achievement and he's, he's done really well. And I suppose a bit like Spalletti, they're at the start of something as well. So it's mm-hmm. interesting to see what Turkey can become from here. And funnily enough, like Italy, 
they don't have a nailed on centre forward as well. So they're sort of twinned from a distance. I did just wonder, Montella, if there's a little bit of like, it's not just he relates to the football, but he relates to the people. And I think about after the earthquake and he was raising charity initiatives. And yeah. He talked about even... People really like him. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, from talking of one coach to another, Roberto Martinez, after doing um, what I know you've talked about in the past, Sandy, is a decent job. Uh, for the Belgium national team, has now gone to Portugal. And he seems to be doing a good job there and all. Yeah, and funnily enough, just like the greeting, in inverted commas, that he had in, in, in Belgium, people were pretty nonplussed in Portugal when he when he got the job. Um, I think sometimes people have unreasonable expectations of who national federations are actually able to, to, to get. You know, you don't get Conte, Klopp... Um, you get Guardiola type, 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 type managers, uh, normally mm. speaking. Um, so I, I think he's proved to have, have, have done a pretty good job so far. Okay, it wasn't the most difficult qualification group. Um, but having said that, they've dealt with it with a minimum of fuss, which is not Portugal in qualifiers. That They always make a massive song and dance of qualifying. Now, you look at their results, eight wins out of eight. You cannot argue with that. And the only team in qualifying, as Luke was pointing out the other day, that have scored more goals than England in, in, in qualifying for the Euros. And I think the, the job that Martinez was given at the start, I, I think the, dif- the difference is between the job that he was actually given by the FPF, the Federation, and the job that the outside world saw that he had. Because, of course, the FPF's job was qualify with a minimum of fuss, work out how we get all these great attacking players into the same team, which was something that Fernando Santos, who of course has since been sacked, given and sacked from another job, Poland, since since he left the Portugal job, really struggled with, mainly because he's quite a conservative coach. I think that is the the leap forward with Martinez. And he's he's done a very good job of that. You look at how Joao Felix is, is is fully implicated, for example. And of course, the fact that he's performing well with Barcelona is, is, is helpful towards that. But as well, I think the external view was that how do you move on from Cristiano Ronaldo? That was what the rest of the world saw Martinez's job being. 
And he's not done that, actually. But he's managed to not do that and let the team thrive at the same time. Now, we've seen in the last little brace of internationals uh, against, firstly, Slovakia and uh, then uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, where they went and won 5-0 in, in, in Zenica, a venue at which they've struggled before on an often quite gluey pitch. I remember like about 10 years ago in the in, in the freezing cold, um, seeing Portugal really struggle in a sort of, it was, it was a bit like an FA Cup match, really, struggle to get a, a, a nil-nil draw there. And the most notable thing about that is when they had a closed training session in Portugal at this stadium in Zenica, and some local kids like climbed the fences just to chant, Messi, Messi, <laughs> at Ronaldo while he was taking free kicks. He just turned around. He, he didn't care. They were kids. He just gave them the middle finger and carried on doing what he was, he was doing. But in, in this occasion, he scored two goals. They're, they're, they're five up at the break, which is remarkable. And all of a sudden, the question of how do you move on from Cristiano Ronaldo? Is it a better Portugal starting lineup without him in it, which still might be the case, actually, because Gonzalo Damos, of course, was, was brilliant when he started in the, in the World Cup against, against Switzerland. But there's not so much press, pressure on it. See, I was marvelling at how flexible this team has been through qualifying because they've actually used all sorts of different formations. They've mixed and matched that attack because the attack is absurd when you look at it. When you look at the number of players you've, you've got as options up there, you've got obviously Ronaldo, you've got Rafael Leao, you've got um, Bruno Fernandes, you can come on part of it, you've got Gonzalo Ramos, you've got Joao Felix. There's so many players that you could use. And it seems like one of Martinez's great successes through this qualifying campaign has been, well, actually in practice over a qualifying campaign, you don't always have all of them. You have to just chop and change. He's gone pretty much every formation under the sun. They play with the back three at times as well as playing with the back four. They've used wingers. They've not used wingers. Um, they've done a lot with it. And my only sort of question on that is actually when you get to a tournament, all of those dynamics of people being like, well, I don't mind missing a game here or there because I'm injured or because I'm not fully fit and you could do this. Mm. At a tournament, it's not like that anymore. Everyone wants to start right. every game. Yeah. And is it does it become more complicated to make that attack? Happy. I, I, I think you've got a point, Nikki. And the, the way I'll post a question on to you, Andy, but the, the way I read that question is when you look at Roberto Martinez's success, you can't get away from winning the FA Cup with Wigan. Knockout competition is what he does. You know, whether it's about yeah. the man management or it's about looking at the game like every tie is a cup final in a way, rather than, you know, it's a process mm. of uh, a long drawn out season, as it were. But do you, do you think that is what is bringing about the success that Portugal has? That he yeah. looks at every game as if it was like a knockout already? Maybe. And I, I think to go back to, to Nicky's question, the way you supersede argument over that is by winning the games, basically, yeah. isn't, isn't it? That's, that's, that's the way you get over it. If everyone feels they're on board a, a winning team. But I think it's, it's why Martinez is, is actually such a good choice for, for Portugal. Because you think for so many years... Everything has to go through Ronaldo, like past the point where he can actually do much running anymore, which becomes complicated. I mean, he's still scoring he, the goals yeah, though. Just yeah, stick but, him in the box, but Fox he, in the box. He, even as far away as yeah, but if everything has to go through him, then it becomes complicated because if he doesn't put the chances away, you're stuck all of a sudden, aren't you? Mm. Uh, whereas you need that variety. Whereas, uh, like, even as far away as Euro 2016, you know, where they eventually win, of course, they play a system that requires Ronaldo to not run much. 
So they've been dealing with this for a while, even if it's become more of a problem in the eyes of the world as we've gone on and he's, he's got a bit older and it's become more noticeable, I suppose. But there, there are several other players who, in a normal situation, you would say need the team built around them. Like Bruno Fernandes, he's at the he's best when he need, he's in charge of the team, mm. when he's like the creative director of of, of the he's team. He's a captain, isn't so, he? He's a leader. Yes, yes. And he loves piling all that responsibility on himself. But that's why it was difficult with him and Ronaldo at the beginning, because it was always Ronaldo's team and it needed to become Bruno Fernandes' team. Mm. But then when it becomes Bruno Fernandes' team, how do you fit in Joao Felix? You know, Joao Felix is... is a striker, of course, but one who drops out, who likes to have lots of the ball, who likes to set the parameters of, of the play. And really, in a very different way, that's Bruno Fernandes' job. So I think if you look at how he's managed to fit these players in the same team, that that is, that is a, a really, really incredible in- achievement so far. I guess It's also incredible that you've got all that and you've managed to balance that in there and actually like... Maybe it's the old sort of adage, attack is the best form of defence, but mm. they didn't concede a goal until the Slovakia game at all. So we can talk about them scoring 32, which is crazy, but they've only conceded two and just in a single game. But it's, it's, it's funny, after that game, the first question to Roberto Martinez in the press conference was, do you think Portugal have got a problem when they haven't got the ball? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. He said, well... <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, one of those goals was a banger from mile, miles out. He, he said, I, th- I thought we were pretty good without the ball after he wiped the exasperation from his brow. But I think that's always the question. It's, it's a little bit like England in qualifying. Because they've bossed it to such an extent, mm. the question has always been, always going to be, how are they going to step up when it gets real? When it gets real in the in the back end of the tournament. And of course, we can't know until we're in the last 16, quarterfinals, maybe semifinals, whatever. But I think if they're in a position where they can keep Ruben Diaz fit, where they can decide what they're going to do with the goalkeeper, that's the big question because mm-hmm. Roberto Martinez has said in November, I'm going to decide who my starting goalkeeper is. I mean, really, it should be Diogo Costa. It really, it really should be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Rui Patricio's not been in great nick for Roma. No, I, he's really I think been struggling this season. And, 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 and a lot of last, actually, as, yeah. as, as well. So I, th- I think he, he needs to firmly make that choice. The other thing, I think Palina needs to be in, in, in great nick to protect that defence. Because if you think with all those attacking players, he's going to be a busy man, isn't he? Here we are again talking about, well, are we talking about Sevilla or are we talking about their iconic uh, defender, Sergio Ramos? Can you talk about one without the other? This is a good question. I think it's a good question. Um, Of course, Sevilla are cup winners. They may not be in the position that cup winners generally find themselves in in their domestic league. There are all sorts of issues around that. But let's just start off with this return this weekend uh, of when Sergio met Real Madrid. He was there for 16 years. Then he went off to PSG, of course. Uh, Didn't work out well for him at PSG, I think it's fair to say. But here he is facing his, uh, you could argue, his alma mater. I know he started at Sevilla, 
But nevertheless... I know what you're saying. He became proper Sergio Ramos at Real Madrid. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what he became the hard nut at uh, Real Madrid. Let's start off with him and talk about Sevilla wide, well, more widely. But is he... I mean, Real Madrid know him like the back of their hands, I'd have thought. Is he in for a, a spanking, if you like? I, I, I worry that anyone going up against Real Madrid is, is not in for a fun time at the moment. And certainly a team that has seemed in a certain amount of... Well, it's such a, such a conundrum with Sevilla, isn't it? Because they seem like they're constantly in a state of disarray. They've gone through four managers in the last year. Am I overcounting? No, that's, that's right. right. Uh, yeah. and, and yet, they still won a Europa League, so, yeah, yeah. so that you know they're still capable of it. And Sergio Ramos is just one of the names you look at in this team and think, well, actually, there's, there's plenty there. There's plenty of talent there. Some of it is is perhaps like Ramos at the wrong end of the career, but... Um, but are they in trouble against a team that's got Jude Bellingham in it? Well, I think everyone's in trouble against a team that's got Jude Bellingham in it. So, so yes. Yeah, and there there are some older legs in yeah. in, in, in that severe midfield as as well. I mean, part of the thing that led to the departure of uh, uh, Jose Luis Mendilibar uh, as coach after twenty eight games in charge. By the way, twenty eight games during which he steered them away from relegation. And won them the enough. Europa League. Right? It's not enough. It's, 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 not it's, enough. It's, it's remarkable. When you when you put it down to the sheer numbers, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's 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 just so a severe shooting incredible. themselves in the foot. Then in that case, because well, like part of the reason that that he went is because in the last game against Rayo Vallecano, just before the break, he subbed Fernando in 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 the first half, um, who's been pretty good for them uh, in in recent years, but but, but he's old now. You know, he's he's been a great defensive, one of the better defensive midfielders in Europe for a, a number of years, ever since he was back at Porto, even if he didn't quite hit the heights of uh, Manchester City. And um, it was seen as just disrespect too much to bring him off in the, in the first half. Now, that tells you, I think, a lot about not just the athletic difficulties of having older players underpinning your team, but the human side of managing the dressing room is really difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and bear in mind, Mendelebar is ex- really experienced, but at a certain level. So he is someone who had not coached a European game until he took charge of Sevilla uh, last spring, for example. So all of a sudden, like he should, if he wants to make a sub in the first half, he should be able to make a sub course, in the first half. But it's political. You know, it's, it's something that's, that's that's really huge. And to me, it looked like they were looking for an excuse to dump him. Now, I think there's an argument... Because of their position in the league. Yes. And I think there's... Which might partly be his fault, but it's also the fault of just dreadful squad construction, which yeah. goes back to when when Monchi was in, in, in charge. And Sergio Ramos is symbolic in a way in that he's someone who's a giant of the game and you hope will, from their perspective, will lead them out of it as well. But he's also symbolic of the fact that just signing these old guys when they used to sign players and develop them, you know, they weren't signing, you know, old Danny Alves. They were signing young Danny Alves and developing him into the player who went to Barcelona. You know, they were bringing up Sergio Ramos through the academy and then selling him to Real Madrid for an absolute fortune. And, you know, you can look at other players, Jules Koundé more recently, but players, players like that. So... They've got a bit of a difficulty. And going back to what Nicky was saying, the arrival of Diego Alonso, who I know Tim Vickery really rates for his his, his time in, in, in charge of Uruguay. In fact, he, he told me a story about him at the weekend when he thought Alonso could be a, a good coach is when 
in one of his first jobs, he was explaining what he did in training. And he said, often in training, we'll have a small scale game and I'll make myself the ref. And I'll referee it really badly. I'll get loads of decisions wrong because, he said, I say to the players, this is what you've got to get used to in the game. And you can't spend ages chasing after the referee. You have to just deal with it as it is. And let's not make excuses about the ref. Let's just work out a way to win the game. I want a uh, camera on that with Sergio Ramos. Yeah. I, want, I want Sergio Ramos' small-sided game badly refereed player cam. But maybe <laughs> bad refereeing is keeping Sergio Ramos on, though. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. That's the other way of looking at it. But going back to what you were saying, Nikki, uh-huh. the, the issue is not with Diego Alonso, mm. who, who could turn out to be a good coach for them. Mm. It's that. And everyone in... And all the severe supporters are looking at it this way and a lot of the media in the city are looking at it this way. If you've just become, as one of the journalists put it, like a shredder for coaches, you can't hope to have any success if if if, if that's the way you're going. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one as well. Obviously, Tim will have far more insight than I would into his um, South American coaching career, which is basically all of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm always interested in what managers represent when you make a new appointment. And I think Mandilabar was this really obvious sort of choice to go for gruff, no nonsense, like just going to talk straight and, and dig us out of this, exactly, of this messy relegation situation, which ended up being enough to win them the Europa League as well. But maybe that's just something that goes beyond managers at this point. Sevilla just have it somehow embedded in them. Um, but I can totally see how that story then almost inevitably ends with early next season, you no longer feel like your ambition is just to fight relegation. And so why have we got this guy here still? Um, but what does what does Alonso represent? Because he's had success in his career, but not recently, actually, in terms of winning things. You go back to... And he's never coached anyone in Europe. Right. And 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 it's, it's a puzzle. Like, what what's the sort of... Again, what's the idea behind it? And I think especially when you're making these appointments, not in September or not September, sorry, not in June, not before the season starts, doing it in October, it it really sort of, I don't know, it, it has this inherent sort of worry with it of is this just scattershot, this guy's available and someone gave us his phone number. Yeah, I, I think so because I, I, the, the positive way you would look at it is, well, Sam Pauli coming to, to Europe and, yeah. and, and thriving the first time when he was at Sevilla. It's, it's about a philosophy and, you know, Sevilla is different to the rest of Europe and, you know, you, you, mm. you, you, look, you look at it that way. You know, we're nearly in Africa here. That, that's, that's the way you look at it. The Edith other... would have a shout out. Yeah, they, they definitely would. They definitely would. <laughs> uh, and I, I, but I think you, you look at that and then the other way of looking at it is the revelation in recent days that Marcelino got offered it first and said no. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and, you know, that that is the thing. When you think, okay, if you've got a certain type of coach you want to go for, fine. Mm. But when you get clubs that don't get one coach, so they go for another coach, which obviously they have to do, but one who's totally different, that's a concern, isn't it? It's been a OTC of coaches today. You know, went from... Spalletti to Martinez, and then uh, finally to <laughs> exposing the problem at Sevilla. But we do need a game of the week now that the international break is over. There's a lot of football going on. Um, I wonder where you would both go to recommend a game of the week for us. Uh, who, who, who wants to go first? Oh, we need some food as well to go with this. You know what I'm like. <laughs> 
always always the food yeah. uh, so uh, Saturday, Saturday night if I can tempt you with a bit of Nice versus Marseille nice um, uh, Nice have been really interesting this season nice a lot, lot of Italian vibes in this as well Nicky not with just uh, Gennaro Gattuso of course being in charge of, of, of Marseille um, but Francesco Farioli who's looked really good in charge of Nice so far this season um, Italian born uh, done a lot of coaching in, in Turkey his first couple of senior jobs has, uh, have been there and given that Nice and obviously Sir Jim Ratcliffe who's been mentioned who's the owner of Nice and has been um, looking at this 25% takeover of Manchester United a lot of view on Nice and how they're running things at the moment they've really cut back they got in Florent Guizolfi, the sporting director from Lens, with uh, the idea of him working with much bigger resources. He's now found it's not like the brochure and he won't have the money to spend that perhaps they have in the, the past, even the recent past when they went and spent £25 million last last January on um, Terran Moffi, the, the, the Nigerian centre-forward, who's, who's one of a number of terrific Nigerian centre-forwards about at the moment. Um, but I, I think in appointing Fadioli... They've shown the way that they want to go. That we want to be innovative. We want to be smart. We want to do more with less. That's the way we, we, we want to go forward. And the, the football's been pretty decent so far this season. I, I, I really like the look of Nice. And of course, you've got to add the fact when Nice and Marseille come together, it's spicy. It's always spicy. Of course, you, you had that big tear up on the, on the pitch with like fans and members of the Marseille staff getting into it. Um, the season before last, so hopefully none of that, obviously, but um, it's always quite tense. So um, I think, look, given that the situation is what it is, have a good meal beforehand, I would say. I think if you go to the old town in Nice, there's a lot of Italian influence, not just on this game, but on, on the city in general. I think you're going for a nice, simple thin crust, maybe pepperoni pizza for that bit of extra spice as we've already been describing yeah. in the old town in, in Nice. A little walk along the Promenade des Anglais oui, oui. And, and then uh, get, get yourself to the Allianz I've Riviera. I've got a big smile on my face because of course it is in that old town with all the little cafes on the yeah. uh, pavement and so on that I found a 10 franc piece in the days when, you know, 10 francs was really, the it was a king's ransom. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I found a 10 franc piece right there. So a game of the week for you, Nikki, and a food pairing. So it's Milan. I'm, I'm always so reluctant to name a game that has Juventus in it, but it's Milan against Juventus on Sunday night. And that is first against third in the table. And I'm sorry in advance if this turns out to be one of those Allegri games where you just want to scratch your eyes out because nothing's happening for 90 minutes. We just need an early Pulisic goal. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, uh, But Milan are top of the table. And uh, and I think that in my mind, Inter are probably still the favourites, but I think there's a very good chance it's going to be the two Milan clubs who lead the way most of this season. And they've only lost once this season and they are playing very good football. They've got this American contingent in there now with Pulisic and, and Moose that makes things interesting. Obviously, Rafael Leal continues to be brilliant. The team is is exciting and 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 new from last season. So really big game for them. But also a big game for for Juventus, who have, in a less inspiring way, have, have been getting good results. Um and uh I think here's a start for this one, having missed the Italy game, so that is a big blow to them. But a really meaningful test of, of where they are this season because again 
they have got Scudetto ambitions, especially with not being in Europe this season. So that's the game. And I'm I'm torn for my meal because it's it's getting cold. The night's getting colder. And I just think nice risotto alla milanese warm you up. But part of me thinks you should lean all the way into your American Milan experience and get yourself a <laughs> big fat burger or something else instead. I'll have both. I'll, I'll keep you a slice of Niçois pizza as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thank you for both of those recommendations and the food to go with it. And thank you for listening to On the Continent. Make sure you join us again tomorrow for Ask OTC, where we'll be answering all of your questions about the latest news from the world of European football. And do make sure to subscribe in your podcast app so that you never miss an episode. On the Continent is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.